Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Hello, and welcome again to another edition of Desert Island Goals. Thank you very much for taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. I am your host, Callum Squires, back again with another episode where our guest will take us through their footballing life, the five goals that they would rewatch, relive if they were stuck on a desert island with only those five forevermore and how they became the football fan that they are today. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by a very special guest, Mr. Luke Scranton. Luke, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This is exciting. It's been a long time coming, so happy to be here. Always an <laughs> honor to be talking to the big man. Yeah, I'm glad to have you with me, mate. Yeah, it's been a little while in terms of organizing diaries and getting a date blocked in, but I'm really glad that we're able to get this in. This will be a really good conversation, I know, for a number of reasons. Um, but obviously, we start every episode introducing our guest to our audience for people out there who do not know you and do not know your story as a football fan. Luke, first things first, obviously they can hear the difference in our accents, but where are you from and what's your kind of earliest memory of being a football slash soccer fan? Yeah, man. So I uh, grew up in Austin, Texas, um, born and raised here, lived here my whole life, uh, pretty much grew up in a soccer family. Dad played college soccer, was a soccer coach um, after that. Older brother played soccer. I played. My sister played. So I've pretty much always grown up since, you know, whatever, three years old, kicking the ball around the house and then um, playing 3v3, small-sided as a young kid with dad as the coach up through youth soccer and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, just continued to be my passion, pretty much my main sport all through high school. I was lucky enough to actually play abroad a couple times in high school, um, traveled over to Germany for a month. Traveled to Jamaica for a two-week training camp with some coaches from Valencia FC. So super fortunate um, to have had, you know, quite a few different experiences as I grew up before eventually playing college soccer, um, which I did at Trinity in San Antonio with you, of course. And we had a blast there. But yeah, man, so that's that's how it's been. It's been a, been a fun ride. Going back to the idea of that soccer family that you, you grew up in, um, would you say that was typical in Austin? I think we've, we've had a number of people on here from different areas in Texas and, you know, the, the hotbed of soccer that Top Hell, Texas appears to be, certainly in the FC Dallas area. Um, but we haven't had too many voices from the Austin area. So we, would you say that was, was typical in your area? Was it unusual to be a soccer family in a part of the world which is typically do dominated by American football and basketball? Yeah, I mean, I do feel a little bit more unusual. Um, I mean, most of my friends in school weren't big on soccer. Obviously, you know, the ones that I played club soccer with um, and still went to school with. But even a lot of them, I didn't actually go to the same high schools or middle schools with. So, yeah, I think definitely the Houston's and the Dallas's of Texas are, are bigger hotbeds. And, you know, when we had important tournaments or bigger tournaments, so to speak, those are where those are the cities we'd go to to play those. Um, Dallas Cup and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't think Austin 
and you know more so now and now we finally have our own professional team in Austin FC which is huge um, and I think that it's awesome that it's the first professional sports team in general to be in Austin um, that's massive so I think that soccer is growing a lot but definitely when I was growing up I don't I don't think it was as common for for kids my age to be as into it as I was and obviously with your dad I'm assuming that there may have been some links into certain elements of fandom and i assume obviously the u.s men's national team is probably going to be a big part of uh, your identity but for those of us who for, for the audience who can't see us on the audio right now you have a very clear visual clue behind you in terms of uh, luke's background of which team he supports but luke what was there a reason why the club that is your club became your club and which is your club yeah, so I do. I do support the Mighty Reds, uh, Manchester United, the only team in red, the right side of Manchester. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the influence came from my dad um, for sure. And it's funny, I was actually talking to him the other day about um, his fandom of Man United, just because we've been kind of reminiscing and how happy we've been to finally be on a, a winning run and an upturn in form and how nice that's been because we haven't had this in a while. But um, yeah, I think when he first got into coaching, which was the late nineties. Um, he, you know, went to whatever coaching events and found like a, a man United season review video, um, and put that in. It was like all games. And I think from that point on, he just kind of became a fan of them. And to be fair, he did say at that time, he did like to watch both, uh, United and Arsenal just because it felt like, you know, Wenger and Sir Alex were, were playing the best soccer at that time. Um, and that's what he liked to watch to kind of learn off of. But, yeah, so he's been a Man United fan forever, and then growing up with that influence um, is kind of kind of where my fandom came from. And pretty pretty diehard fan now is you know audio podcast. The listeners can't see, but I do have a, a nice Man United wallpaper behind me. So. <laughs> yeah, and I I know Luke is as, as diehard a United fan as I am, and that's you know that's that's saying something as well. So um, with with United growing up, obviously you know plenty of success but were there particular players who resonated more with you than others and was that potentially a part of your decision making process in terms of which goals you were going to include on this list uh well definitely Paul Scholes was all-time idol favorite player to watch um you know I played central midfield for the majority of, of my playing career um so kind of tried to to model my game after him um I mean it's just his range of passing and vision was incredible. Um, I mean, he obviously scored brilliant goals too on the volley and long range finishes. But for me, it was always just the artistry of his, his passing and his vision um, that I took after and, and tried to watch and learn off of. Um, and, you know, I've, I don't know. I mean, obviously really good goals are fun to watch, but I, I enjoy the, the creation of the goals and making the assists. That's always been my favorite part of the game. So, um, and he was he was very good at at setting those up. So, um, shockingly, he's actually not in my five goals. Um, and there's reasons. Maybe, for that, maybe honorable mentions. We, so we can get there. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. But um, yeah, I would say that he was definitely my favorite United player growing up. And I kind of alluded to earlier, but I was a little bit putting words in your mouth in terms of the US team. And I find that when we have had Americans on this podcast, typically the national teams mean a lot to them. And that's not to say that that doesn't happen in the UK and other parts of the world, but it does feel like 
I, I would say a higher percentage of Americans have put a US goal on their list than Brits or English people have put an English England goal on their list or something like that. Um, how do you feel about the the US national team and I guess the the state of play right now in the aftermath of Rainergate and everything and everything going on with that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is important and it, it does mean a lot. Um, they're a lot more fun to watch now. I do, I do feel like personally, you know, and I may get roasted for this, but I was kind of a, a U.S. men's national team hater, at least growing up, just in terms of <laughs> it never felt like we played good soccer. It never felt like we were trying to develop our national team. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of our other talent goes to other sports in America. Um, and so maybe I was just salty about that. Of course, when the World Cup comes around, you know, you go all out and you're, you're out with your friends and all your friends who don't play soccer all get into the World Cup. Um, and it's a great time. But yeah, I think that the the state of our our team now is, is exciting, to say the least. Um, we have a lot of young talent. I do think um, even prior to the, the Reina Gate, it's probably best for Greg Berhalter to move on personally. I think he did his job and what he needed to do and kind of brought this youth in. But I think especially watching the the uh, World Cup games that we played, I don't think he's a, a top-level manager to continue to take this team to the next level. Um, a lot of negative tactics, in my opinion, and not really utilizing our best talent um, to really go at some of the bigger teams in the world um, and teams that we really should be beating. It, it kind of felt like we were playing for draws and maybe just see if we can steal a goal on the counter, which maybe that's what you needed to do with this young team. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I think that if we can find a real top-class coach and then maybe two or three more positions to fill, I think that 2026 here in America could be a really, really exciting World Cup for us. Really agree with that. Really looking forward to that already, even, what, three and a half years away, basically. Um Let's move. Let's move towards the goals because obviously that's that's why you're here to take us through your desert island goals list. Was the decision making process a complicated one for you? Did you find it hard to put this list together? And were there any particular criteria that you used in deciding which goals ended up in your final five? Yeah, it definitely it was tough. You know, when when you first asked me to put a list together, it seemed pretty easy you know five five goals came pretty quick to mind five or six but then I mean there's just so many of them that you kind of go back and forth between um and so yeah it was definitely difficult to narrow down to five and just to choose five um I would say in terms of criteria definitely I would say I mostly chose goals that were emotion based or brought some sort of emotion I mean there's definitely some brilliant finishes um in, in these goals but for the most part, I mean, I think that that's what makes soccer the beautiful game anyways. Um, it's just the emotion that's tied to it. Um, the memories you can pull from it and attach to it. Um, you know, I mean, it. soccer games have the ability to make or break my weekend at this point. You know, I can <laughs> at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, I can just already have a yeah. bad weekend if United lose. Um, or it can be a great weekend if they win. So. I would say definitely a lot of my goals were tied to some sort of emotion or memory um, that they that they brought about. Nani.
2-1 United. One of the great goals in the history of the Manchester Derby. Okay, goal number one for Luke. And as you might expect, based on Luke's fandom and what he's told us already, we're starting with Manchester United. We will be back with them just a couple more times on this list. But this one is one that I think everybody may assume a Manchester United fan would at least consider this one based on the quality of the goal, the moment itself, what it meant in the season in the long run. And I think it's fair to say it's gone down as probably one of the all-time iconic Premier League goals and probably always will be. So, there's a f- I mean, to be fair, there's probably a few that you could think I'm talking about with Manchester United, fortunately. But this one in particular, we're back in February of 2011. It's Manchester United 2, Manchester City 1, Al Trafford, a scoreline that has been repeated joyously rather recently. But in this game, it is the Wayne Rooney overhead kick that we're talking about. It would be remiss of us not to just give you the lay of the land. You've obviously heard the commentary just then. But United took a 1-0 lead late in the first half through Luis Nani. Uh, actually, a really well-taken goal um, from a player who blew very hot and very cold at times before one of the weirder equalizers in Manchester Derby history where Edin Dzeko's shot hit David Silva on the back, went in completely the opposite direction into the net, and Edin Dzeko had the audacity to wheel away, claiming that he'd scored. The goal was given to David Silva. And then 12 minutes from time, Wayne Rooney with the aforementioned bicycle kick. Did it come off his shin? Maybe. We'll talk about that perhaps. But right into the top corner, top corner past Joe Hart. Cue absolute pandemonium at Old Trafford. Manchester United would go on to win the league title in this season. And this goal was a huge part of that, to be completely honest. Luke, it's incredible. Obviously, you know, I I think one of the commentaries of this goal says it defies description. And that's a very apt description, to be completely honest, because to do that in that moment, that quality with that pressure, that execution, it's simply incredible. Take me back to your memories of the day and what you remember about this goal in particular. And is this just Wayne Rooney all over? We haven't really spoken enough about the goal scorer in that introduction, but take it away. Yeah, honestly, I mean, just unbelievable goal, unbelievable time in the derby to win the game. Um, And really, I mean, there's all those factors. But also for me, I mean, growing up watching Man United with my dad, um, you know, something that we always did together on the weekends. But this was, I think, just having the vivid memory of both of us watching this goal and being in awe. It's like one of the first clear memories that I have of both of us watching a game. Um, Because this would have been, I think, maybe eighth grade, the end of middle school, um, when I was really like starting to actually process watching games and have memories of watching games. And so this is one of the first memories that I have. Um, You know, Rooney goes up, somehow makes that adjustment, flies into the top corner. My dad stands up and is going crazy. And I'm like, I'm just sitting there and I'm actually in silence for a couple seconds, just like hands over my head. Like, there's no way that we just witnessed this. And then they pan over to Sir Alex Ferguson um, and the rest of the bench going crazy. Um, Just unbelievable goal, unbelievable memory. Um, Yeah. And, you know, like I said, move started with Paul Scholes. So he has made it into our, into our top five goals. He has, he has. And yes, the move does start with him and it's, you know, again, Scholes out to Nanny, whose cross takes a little bit of a deflection and just, 
balloons up somewhat perfectly for Rooney. But the thing that always always got me with this goal is you have to be a special kind of individual to even think of attempting that, you know? And 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 he's he's not on this list, spoiler alert, but there was a player for United, Dimitar Berbatov, who often did things that we kind of just didn't really understand. And yet when you asked him about it in a post-match interview, he'd always go, well, but like, what else would you do? Like, that's that's what you're supposed... Like, I'm in that situation, right. I'm supposed to back heel it from 12 yards into the bottom corner. And I think it takes takes that level of genius to even have this idea, let alone execute it. And I mean, for me, Wayne Rooney is arguably the most skilled English player I've ever seen up to this point. I think there is actually a possibility Phil Foden, if he fully develops, could get towards that. But what, what Wayne Rooney did for Manchester United and in this moment itself is just remarkable. And would you say he's he's up there in terms of just ingenuity as, as a United player in, in your fandom? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's he's definitely an all-time great. And it's it's almost, it's weird to say because he's obviously a legend and everyone knows that and the goal scoring records, but it still feels like somewhat underrated. And I think just because, just because of, you know, no offense, but the English media in general to go after United players, he obviously had his, his bouts with Ferguson near the end of his career. Um, and so I think, you know, some of that stuff at the end with Ferguson and then, um, you know, the Moyes era and Louis van Gaal eras where United weren't as good. I feel like his greatest moments just kind of got swept swept under the rug a little bit. Um, you know, of course, everybody knows, but I do feel like he's underrated as not just a, a Man United legend, but an England legend, just an all-time soccer legend. Firstly, absolutely no offense taken about English media, but I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Secondly, yeah, I, I honestly, I posed this question to someone else a few months ago, and I really do feel like Wayne Rooney is underrated. I really do. In terms of, I think if he had played, let's let's say Wayne Rooney had done at his age what Jude Bellingham did. Jude Bellingham's gone abroad and is now almost universally viewed as potentially the most valuable central midfielder in the world when he decides to leave Borussia Dortmund. If Wayne Rooney yeah. had left Everton and gone to Real Madrid instead of Manchester United, I honestly think he would be more revered in England because you don't have that association to Everton quite so viscerally and to Manchester United, which obviously is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And I get it. We've all been there. You know, even now, te- you know, what is it, five years on since he kind of left United and then retired, Wayne Rooney. You know, he's been retired for at least three years, four years. And just right. now you're starting to hear fans of other English clubs be like, yeah, I mean, what a player. But it's really hard to do that in the midst of the career when you have that rivalry, right? So I, I completely agree with you, you know, on underrated. And, and, and you know, in a, in a game like this, which means so much to the fans, it, it, it's just a moment that will live forever. And, you know, I guess, I guess it, as far as this game goes, you know, Manchester City at the time and ever since have been, you know, challenging for the title. And this, you know, swung this this year, which was kind of with Chelsea a little bit more than City by the end, um, but swung the title race in in United's favour. Um, do, do you do you have a particular ill feeling towards Manchester City, and is that part of the decision making process for this list? I mean, obviously, we've said you're significantly far away from where you might find a lot of Manchester City fans, but I've also grown to realize that there's a very big Manchester City supporting population in the US, potentially based on them 
starting to get good as soccer became more prevalent here. Yeah, no, exactly. There's definitely a bunch of uh, bandwagon city fans in America. <laughs> um, you know, people started to, like you said, they started to like soccer at the same time as as uh, city city got bought out and uh, started to buy all the players, and so they started winning trophies and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that, and obviously I have the hatred towards city just just being a United fan, but especially with some of the the friends that I have that you know grew up playing American football or basketball or whatever, and started to become fans and just chose City because they were winning all the time. Um, so you know it'll be nice to see if uh, if Ten Hag can come in and and kind of kill that era of City just winning title after title off. He's already said it. Eras come to an end, so we'll see. And we'll come back to Ten Hag a little bit later on with uh, with Luke's final goal, perhaps. Um, but just just lastly on this one, you know, you, you mentioned the part that, that Paul Scholes played in this goal. And, you know, I was looking at the two lineups in this game. The Manchester United midfield of Anderson, Ryan Giggs, Nanny, Paul Scholes and Darren Fletcher has you know, a very Fergie eel Fergie era feel to it. What are your recollections of, of, of that kind of midfield? Obviously you said yourself, you know, big on the assist in, in how you view the football and you were a very talented midfielder yourself. Did you have particularly positive feelings around, you know, that group of players other than skulls, obviously? Um, I do. I mean, I feel like, you know, Ferguson was able to make success out of any three that he chose to put in midfield or, you know, three to six with the whole, with the whole front six. Um, and that was, that was one of the fun parts about watching them. Um, and, you know, whether it was tactics or he just is able to get a tune out of every single player that he puts on the pitch. Um, it was just always fun to watch. I think, I think you mentioned too, we had John O'Shea in there, the, the all time utility player playing in that game, just played any position. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, definitely a lot of fun to see the different ridiculous lineups that he could put out in all different types of games, whether it was a big game or just a, an FA cup game that he didn't really care about um, and still be able to go and win those games was always, was always a fun part about watching them. And now United on the counter attack themselves. Kagua, here's Rooney. Looking for oh, Van Persie. That's a hell of a ball, though. He's going to find Van Persie. On the volley! Oh! Robin Van Persie might just have scored the goal of the season. He came here to win trophies. Has a league title for starters. We will never forget that strike. United 2, Villa 0. Goal number two for Luke. And we are back at Old Trafford, but we've jumped forward a couple of years to April of 2013 and at this stage we didn't know it because it hadn't quite been announced yet but we were in the final throes of the Sir Alex Ferguson era at Manchester United and this 2012-2013 season is pretty much synonymous with one player I think it's fair to say because after losing the title in heartbreaking fashion Sergio Aguero and all that Manchester United went out and bought Robin Van Persie from Arsenal in the summer of 2012 and used that signing to wrestle the league back from Manchester City. It was, if, if you're going to boil down, you know, individual championships to individual players, 
I think City will obviously talk about the Aguero title because how could you think of anything else when you think of that league? You think of 2009 and the Federico Makeda title that we've spoken about on this podcast before. And this clearly is the Robin Van Persie title. There's no, there's no, there's no two ways about it. So you probably know where we're going with this when I say Robin Van Persie and 2013, but it doesn't make it any less special. This is Manchester United 3, Aston Villa 0 on Monday, the 22nd of April, 2013. United arrive at Old Trafford knowing that with a win tonight over Aston Villa, they will be crowned Premier League champions in front of their home fans, which honestly, in the Ferguson era, was actually quite rare to win the league at Old Trafford. Like It happened a number of times where the league was sealed away from Old Trafford, either because United weren't playing in 2006-07. I remember United winning the league because Chelsea and Arsenal drew. In 2007-08, they won it at Wigan. Um, so it, it's not always a guarantee that you're going to get to physically seal the title in front of your home fans. And this was a special one. Robin Van Persie scored a hat-trick inside of 33 minutes and United ran out very comfortable 3-0 winners. But one moment clearly stands out above all the rest, which is the second goal of the night. An unbelievable volley that man again, Wayne Rooney, looks up from just inside his own half and pings a 40-yard diagonal, 50-yard diagonal right onto the left boot of Robin Van Persie, who smashes it past unfortunate Brad Guzan, the American goalkeeper in goal, who has an perhaps unwanted place in Premier League history with that ball getting smashed past him. But to be fair to him, what was he supposed to do with that? There was absolutely no chance for him whatsoever. And Old Trafford goes crazy. That 2-0 after 13 minutes, I remember exactly where I was watching this game. You kind of feel like it's done at 2-0. You know, you're not going to throw three goals away with the league on the line. And I was just looking at the Aston Villa lineup. And with all due respect to them, I hadn't remembered quite how poor their back four was that night. The front six weren't terrible, but not necessarily at the peak of their powers. But a back four of Nathan Baker, Joe Bennett, Ron Vlaar and Matt Lowton is not exactly exemplary. Uh, certainly when you think of some of the Aston Villa teams that they've had in the Premier League era. But Luke, that's enough from me. Let's let's talk about the goal from your side of things. Where were you for this goal? What are your memories of it? And why did it have to be on your Desert Island goals list? Yeah, so I was actually uh, in my sophomore English class. Um, and I think this was the early the early days of the streaming services, like becoming popular and having them on my phone and just being able to watch games on my phone in class. Um, and funny enough, the my teacher for this English class was my high school soccer coach, and he's a big Chelsea fan. Um, so he, I mean, he knew full well that I was watching the game just because of the importance of it. Um, and I just, I remember seeing Rooney plays the ball over the top, and it's in the air, and you're thinking, Van Persie's going to bring this down, and then he's just going to slot it past Guzan, and he just, he takes it first time and it's just an unbelievable finish. I start freaking out. Like I got up out of my chair and had to go and show my teacher. I was like, dude, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this goal that he just scored to win us the title. Um, which was, you know, just cool in and of itself that I had a, a soccer coach as my teacher. That was cool enough to be letting me watch the game. Cause I don't, I don't remember what we were doing, but um, yeah. So it was all around again, just an unbelievable goal at, an unbelievable time to win the title. It's Robin Van Persie. 
now Manchester United legend, um, completely taken away from from Arsenal folklore. And yeah, just amazing. The, the goal is is again, you know, I don't want to borrow a line from the previous goal, but it almost defies description. He he'd scored a couple like this for Arsenal. I remember a flying volley away at Charlton Athletic in like oh six, I think it was. And I remember a famous one against Everton at the Emirates, which which hit the post. And there is an argument that maybe hitting the post makes it look that little bit more impactful because you get the bang off the post into the net. But the way this hits the corner of the net and the way the crowd goes up. And the thing I remember about this is when they cut to Sir Alex Ferguson's reaction in the crowd and he can barely believe it. Yeah. Well, it's that and it's that he's, I mean, he's on a full sprint to get to this ball. It's not like, you know, I think, at least my memory of the Everton one is, is he's kind of pulling away at the back post and it gets played over the top and he kind of backpedals to adjust to it. It's not like it's a full, like you said, 40 yard diag that he's at a full sprint and times it perfectly and then just rifles it into, into the corner. And then, you know, you see his, his celebration too. He just wheels away and runs down the entire sideline. Um, yeah. I mean, just unbelievable scenes. And obviously, like I said, we didn't necessarily know at the time, but just a month later, we would be fully at the end of the Sir Alex Ferguson era. And this would unfortunately still be the most recent Premier League title that Manchester United have won, which at the time, you couldn't have convinced me that we'd go 10 years uh, without winning the title after winning it however many times in my first 18 or so years on the planet. It's simply unthinkable, really, but that's the way it went. What are your, you know, you're a couple of years younger than me. And, and you know, like you said, maybe a little bit later in, in getting into United, shall we say. Um, what are your memories of the Ferguson era? And obviously this being the close out of it, not necessarily the crowning glory, which most people might argue was kind of the 08 team and obviously the treble team of 99. But at the end of the Ferguson era, what, what are your kind of recollections of, of how it finished? Yeah, I mean, it obviously it finished in the best way possible in terms of the league and winning the league. Um, and, you know, we were just so used to having that dominance. It was like, it was a matter of which trophies were we going to win each year, not are we going to win any, is what it felt like going into every year. Um, and, you know, during the end, it was it was always, can we get another Champions League, um, which, you know, we went to the two finals against Barcelona, which we deserved to lose both of those because they were just the best team in the world um, at that time. The last year um, that he was there, I mean, that that Nani red card against Real Madrid, just an all-time, all-time shithouse decision. Um, I I truly think that we would have won that game. And just with the with the high we were on, with, with Van Persie getting back on form, because he had his little, whatever, 10-game goal drought, um, getting getting him back on form, and we were clearly going to win the title. I was feeling very confident that we would have a, a good chance to to finish with the Champions League that year too. Um, so that was that was a shame how that worked out. But yeah, I mean, overall, like I said, it's just the it was just the constant winning uh, mentality that that he brought to his teams, no matter who played. Um, and I think you can see that in the fact that you know he was able to just instill that into whatever players he had because of him as a manager, because we really didn't lose that many players the next season when Moyes took over and we were shocking. Um, we added Marijuana Fellaini and Juan Mata and 
we went down to whatever seventh or eighth place. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a testament to his, his ability as a manager and, and his man management skills. Yeah. I mean, the, there are, there are some who suggest that they, you know, should be critical of Ferguson for, I guess what Moyes inherited, but at the end of the day, you know, that's a title winning team. It does absolutely put into perspective what Ferguson did, but if, you know, if you can win the title one season, you can't all of a sudden be whatever it was, seventh the next without there being some sort of explanation. And clearly, no Ferguson and adding Moyes is, is obviously part of that. Um, as we finish on this goal before we before we head on to the next one, Robin Van Persie, again, we've already spoken about Wayne Rooney individually, but and you, you touched on it about Robin Van Persie potentially being a, a Manchester United legend now and maybe not being recalled so fondly in, in North London anymore. What are your recollections of him as a player overall? Because, you know, left footers are sometimes a little bit out there generally. Like, you know, people don't always feel as enamored with a left foot, which I've never really understood, but you, you do hear sometimes people talk about it. And, you know, I, I can't think of someone who I remember see being able to strike a ball more cleanly, you know, in, 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 in recent yeah. Premier League years, he, if he hit it, it's it beyond stayed hit, you know? Yeah, no, just an, an absolutely lethal finisher. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe something about him being left footed and being a left footed finisher just makes it, seem or feel that much better when he would strike a ball. Um, but yeah, I mean, lethal finisher also underrated link up play. Um, he, he linked play up extremely well for United decent header of the ball too. It wasn't, wasn't just his left foot. Um, he could score with his head. He, you know, scored a couple of hat tricks for us finishing with a header. Um, so yeah, I mean, just brilliant player all around. Um, seemed like a great character to have in the dressing room too brought a lot of experience so he was he was a joy to watch it was a shame that we didn't have more years of him with sir alex ferguson um because you know it, it kind of tailed off but even that next season with Moyes, he still he still had a really good goal scoring record um i think he got hurt that season too so he he missed quite a few games for us and that that's probably what hurt us quite a bit but um even even in a poor team which you know he was with a poor team for 15 years at arsenal um, and was still scoring a bunch of goals. So, yeah, just an unbelievable player. Brazil began the day with 220 World Cup game goals to their name. Germany, 216. They've drawn level in the space of 26 minutes. And they're here again. There's three forward. Kadira, Ozil. They're queuing up. They're all going to score at this rate. Kadira, the latest name on the score sheet. And the Brazilians look as though they want to go to the dressing room already. There is no hiding place for this rampant German side. What on earth can Scalari do about this? It's the biggest test of his career. Just so many red and black shirts around. Brazil totally all at sea. Erzil, it's like, who wants it next? Who wants to score a goal? Sami Kadira turn. I think it's my turn. Why not me? Erzil gave him the chance and he tucked it away with some relish. Okay, goal number three. And now for something completely different, it's fair to say. As this is our first and only foray into international football 
on Luke's Des Island goals list. And you may be a little bit surprised by the game based on the fact that it doesn't involve the US at all. But I'm sure Luke will explain why this goal had to be on his Desert Island goals list. I'm sure there's a very valid reason. I can think of a few, to be fair. This is the World Cup semi-final between Brazil and Germany at the 2014 World Cup. Therefore, I assume you probably know how this one is going to go. This finished Brazil 1, Germany 7. And I'll just give you a spoiler and tell you that Luke did not pick Oscar's 90th minute consolation for Brazil. So now the question is, which of the seven has Luke decided to put on his list? Uh, I think you could make a case for almost all of them. But to be fair, I do kind of feel like by taking any one of these, you kind of get all seven. Do you know what I mean? Like this kind of almost a cheat code with this game is that you take one goal, but you actually get seven just based on the story of the game. Uh, Thomas yeah. Muller gave Germany the lead after 11 minutes. Miroslav Klose made it 2-0 after 23. And then and that was the start of the craziest eight minutes in football that I can remember. Tony Cruz made it 3-0 after 24, 4-0 after 26. And after 29 minutes, we get the goal that we're talking about here, which is Sami Kadira to make it 5-0 to Germany. I just remember bursting out laughing, to be completely honest with you. But Luke, take me back to 2014. Take me back to your recollections of, I guess, this game first and then why it had to be the Sammy Kadira goal that went on your list. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned your reaction um, and we'll, we'll get to mine. But yeah, so I was actually, I had mentioned that I had spent a month over in Germany playing in high school. That month happened to be this summer of the 2014 World Cup. So I was in Germany for I basically this entire that. World Cup, uh... this game and the final, um, which, you know, obviously an unbelievable experience. But this game in particular, um, we had found there was like a, it's basically a movie theater that was showing the game um, and you could go and watch it for free and they would have it on the projector. And so theaters packed out, we're all watching the game. Um, and the first, three to four goals, it's like, you know, every time Germany scores, everyone's going crazy, cheering, um, getting excited, getting hyped up. And then the Sammy Kadir goal happens, the fifth goal, and the entire theater, just like you burst out laughing. Like, it it was like we were at an actual movie, just a comedy movie, and everybody just started laughing. Um, And then it was just a party from there. Like, it, it was almost like nobody was even paying attention to the game anymore. We were all just partying, having a good time, and um laughing every time Germany scored again after that so it was just it was it was a lot of fun seeing the the Brazilian tears was was amazing um and just getting to getting to be there with all the other German fans as well it was a hell of a time so I didn't know that story so yeah again you learn something every day and you can you could be friends with someone for 10 years and still learn something new which is great to hear um I guess, obviously, cheering for Germany while in Germany makes a lot of sense. But did you have a particular, I guess, dislike for Brazil? Or was it just purely circumstantial that it was this situation that you ended up in? Um, I would say circumstantial. I I mean, I do think that there's um, Brazilian players that I had disdain for. um, And it was just, just nice to see them sad. I mean, David Luiz, I've never liked. Marcelo... Um, at that time, not a big I can, fan. I can run you through the lineup if you want. I mean, 
So you can yeah, pick them yeah, out. Let's, let's do that. See if, <laughs> so, we'll see if I can name any that I actually liked. So they had Julio Cesar in goal, Mike yeah. on a right back, David Luiz and Dante. No, I think you pronounce it Donch, but David Luiz and Dante at centre back, which was a calamity waiting to happen. Obviously, Marcelo at left back. Midfield of Fernandinho, Man City ties, Luis Gustavo and Oscar, Chelsea ties, with a front three of Hulk, Fred and Bernard. I mean, obviously, the storyline for this game was that Neymar was injured. And right. that would have changed the team and probably the outcome a little bit, though I, you can't convince me that Brazil would have won this game against that Germany midfield of Kadira, Schweinsteiger, Kroos, Muller and Ozil. I mean, you know, come on. Unreal team. But, yeah, so... You know, a little bit of dislike for some of the Brazilians, but just kind of based on being in Germany, that was the right thing to cheer for? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely was. And then just with the World Cup being there, um, and yeah, I don't know. Sometimes sometimes you just want to uh, root against the the uh, Cinderella story and you see you see those tears. And, you know, I know that I've had those experiences too, but it was nice to be on the opposite side of it, so... Some people just want to watch the world burn, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> no, it's complete. I mean, I I had no reason to cheer against Brazil particularly, but I can vividly remember just finding, you know, everything from holding up Neymar's shirt before the game, almost like he died when he was just out injured, you know, to then yeah. being blown away. I mean, this is a semi-final. Like yeah. I, 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 still to this day, you know, I, I, we've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast. The only game that I can think of that comes close to this is the U.S. Women's National Team winning the World Cup final against Japan in 2015. Mm-hmm. I want to say um, when they were, you know, the Carly Lloyd hat trick, and you know they were up five nil or five one in no time, and that was a final, admittedly. But I, I can't think of any any other game like this that had. I guess on paper, roughly an even matchup, and yet was yeah. so was over before anyone could blink. Yeah, I mean, just completely lopsided. It made it made no sense. And you know, it's funny you bring up the the whole Neymar with the t shirt, and because that that was a big reason too. I mean, at that time, I I really wasn't a big fan of Neymar. You know, he kind of seemed like a prima donna, and he's always going down, taking dives, and then like you said, it was just like he had died and like they had to pay homage to him for this game. And so then for it to all go wrong, was just kind of, kind of funny. Um, I will say now my opinion on him has changed a little bit. I was, I was kind of rooting for him a little bit more at this world cup. I mean, you watch him play. He, he is just an unbelievable player. Um, and you watch, watch these games, especially in the world cup. And he just gets the shit beat out of him the whole time. Um, just because of how talented he is um, and how skillful he is. And so I, I have, he has gained my respect a little bit and it's a shame that he's gone through so many injuries throughout his career. But um, yeah, at that time I was definitely a hater and it was, it was fun to, to see their tears. Yeah. I think Neymar is definitely a divisive figure. I mean, you know, he, I think you're right in saying, that. I think maybe he's been more appreciated in, in recent years, but yeah, I mean, I remember him probably being the first, like, quote unquote Twitter slash YouTube footballer, if that makes sense, in terms of like everyone was watching Neymar on social media while he was still in Brazil and and kind of being astounded by how good the player was. And then obviously, you know, he made the move to Barcelona and was fantastic in some ways for them in that Messi Suarez Neymar front three. But 
I do think, you know, we talked a little bit about, about Wayne Rooney earlier, about maybe being underrated. And I wonder if, if Neymar is underrated in the, in the overall echelons of football as well. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. And again, you know, part of that probably comes down to his injuries. Um, it just it just feels like there's always and, you know, there's there's the memes. There was always a time where he was needed most at, at PSG or whatever to come through and help him get to the Champions League. And then all of a sudden he'd be hurt. Um, and so that's that's probably done a lot of damage to to that for him. But, um, yeah, I mean, if if you look at his stats per game, um, you know, they're they're going to be up there with with the very best. So. Absolutely. I'm sure he, he is underrated by most um, and just kind of seen in the same light as I, I used to see him in. I, I feel like we should just quickly actually touch on the goal itself um, just before we finish, because we haven't necessarily spoken about, I guess, the move, um, which is remarkable in that basically Brazil clear the ball long. Uh, I think it's Mats Hummels who kind of dribbles up and basically... David Luiz, for some unknown reason, rushes out to try and uh, engage him, shall we say. And Hummels basically just wins the tackle and happens to slide it straight to Kadira, who plays it wide to Ozil, waits for it to come back to him, and then just strokes it home from just behind the penalty spot. Calamitous defending is not accurate enough. Um, But the move itself... You know, I know you like an extra pass and Ozil's decision to cut it back to Kadira. Is, is that part of the uh, the affection for the goal as well? Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, just the the class of, of Ozil. Um, and he was always the king of the extra pass and the sweaty goal. Um, just to have that composure in that moment. Um, let the defender commit to him and then just set it on a plate for Kadira to finish. Um, and that was that was the unselfishness of that German team, really. Um, they were they were all there to just you know hand each other goals and, and that game it was easy because like you said I mean they had David Luis back there chicken with his head cut off didn't know what he was doing um, so it was it was pretty easy in that game but yeah I mean just just class from Ozil. Messi taking time. Messi hits one. Oh, what a goal! Absolutely outstanding. What a to make it 600 goals for Barcelona. How it's gone in from, what, 30, 35 yards? I will never know. Okay, goal number four for Luke. And arguably the most aesthetically pleasing goal um, that we've had on this list. And I'm sure you'll understand why when you go to YouTube and take a look at the video that's in the description, though. I'd be baffled if you were listening to this podcast and hadn't already seen it, to be completely honest with you. This is Barcelona 3, Liverpool 0 on the 1st of May 2019. And there were three goals in this game, obviously, but one stands out above the other two, I think, for fairly obvious reasons. Lionel Messi scores twice in this game after Luis Suarez gave Barcelona the lead. Uh, after 26 minutes. Messi doubled the advantage after 75. And then in the 82nd minute, stepped up from fully 30 yards. I'm always amazed when you watch the video of this. The wall actually feels 10 yards away. Like this is fully a full 10 yards outside the box. So we're talking 28 to 30 yards for sure. And deposits one of the most picturesque free kicks I've ever seen into the top corner, past arguably 
the best goalkeeper in the world in Alisson at that time and potentially even still now. Um, an incredible talent between the sticks. Luke, there's a lot to go through with this goal. We'll talk about the player in a second and potentially the aftermath of this goal in a second. But take me back to this first leg, Barcelona 3, Liverpool 0, and this Lionel Messi free kick. In the moment, what was your reaction? What were you thinking? Because it's it's truly, I mean, it's awesome in the purest sense of the word. Yeah, I mean, it was just pure artistry. Um it's it's against Liverpool, which makes it even better to make it three nil and just wow. I mean, like you said, un, unbelievable free kick from thirty yards out, and it's you know it's also funny, and you know maybe we'll get into the the Messi Ronaldo debate, um, but you know part of that debate was that Ronaldo was always the free kick taker or the so called free kick taker, but in my eyes, I mean Messi could do any any type of free kick. You know, Ronaldo was supposed to be the one with the power and, and hit him from distance, but. Messi's just banging this one into the top corner from 30, 35 yards. Um, and and he could he could score any type of free kick. So it was just unbelievable seeing it live. Um, and the emotion that was added to it when it was just at that time, at least, it was like, thank God, Liverpool's out of the Champions League. Um, and, you know, so I, I try and remember those feelings and... That's why it would be on my desert island goals, not the aftermath, um, because that was that was an emotion um, of just pure joy and relief that I wouldn't have to hear from from my Liverpool friends um, that they had won a Champions League. Unfortunately, we well, all know what happened. Un- un- unfortunately, there was a there was a referee in the final who gave a handball penalty that wasn't handball after four minutes and changed everything. Anyway, before we get too into that. Um, yeah, you know, the, the aftermath of it, obviously, the second leg being, I think, one of the more infamous games in Champions League history and certainly probably one of Barcelona and perhaps one of Lionel Messi's darkest nights of his career, to be fair, um, because in the reverse leg, Liverpool won 4-0, progressed to the final, uh, which they went on to win. But are you able to separate the two completely? And I and I, and I appreciate that it's, it's not easy and it's, it's difficult, but are you... In your head, are you happy that you're able to compartmentalize the feelings of of pure joy from this messy free kick versus, I guess, the the obvious understandable aftermath? Or is there an element to this which is, again, part of being on your desert island go- desert island with these goals is remembering the greatest players ever? And is that simply a thing where you had to have a Lionel Messi goal on this list? Yeah, I think I think I had to have a Messi goal on the list. Um... And I think I do. I mean, you know, you just kind of have to wipe that that second leg from your mind. Um, and, you know, being on a desert island with this goal, just going back to the pure joy that I felt in this moment, you know, I take that. That's the feeling that I would recreate, um, not the second leg. So that's that's why he's on there. I will say, I mean, I know that you say one of the darker nights in, in Messi's career in that second leg. Um and I think that Messi gets a lot of unwarranted hate for that second leg performance. Um, and I may have, I don't remember if I sent you a, a highlight reel of this previously a while back, but you watch Messi's actual touches from that game. I mean, he set up three or four, what should have been goals for Barcelona in that game. Um, 
and his his teammates just let him down, which is a shame. I didn't mean it in terms of uh, criticizing Messi himself in that game, but obviously, if you're three 0 up in a semi final first leg in the Champions League, you expect to progress to the final. Obviously, um, absolutely. We might, we might talk about another three 0 lead in the semi final. Uh, <laughs> that's a bit more recent, just a bit later on. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it a little bit, and I, you know, I'm I'm not one for playing into the uh, the social media fanboyisms of Messi versus Ronaldo if we can avoid it, but. Messi is a player who has featured a few times on this podcast. Perhaps not enough, because I think you could make an argument that he should be on absolutely everyone's list. What do you say if someone asks you, let's say someone who isn't a soccer fan, asks you about Messi? And that happened a lot to me in the lead-up to this previous World Cup, just gone. The, the Qatar World Cup, there were a lot of people, extended family members in the US and so on, who maybe are not big soccer fans, but would say, what's, you know, they, they've heard of Messi. And, this, you know, what's the, what's the deal with this this messy guy and you know he's trying to win oh, it for simple. argentina he's, he's the lebron james of soccer <laughs> no, just um no i'm just kidding but yeah i mean he's just he's revolutionized the game he's just simply simply the goat the greatest to ever do it um he can do everything like there's there's nothing he can't do with the soccer ball um and i think that that's what separates him from Ronaldo in my eyes, if, if you're going down that debate, um, it's just the pure soccer talent. Um, and Ronaldo is an unbelievable goal scorer, unbelievable athlete, of course, but in terms of just raw soccer talent, um, I just think Messi is the greatest that I've ever seen. I I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of, you know, pinpointing things, but what what is it about him that makes him that way? I mean, I know that's a very easy and broad question. You could take it in any number of ways, but there are other players who are skillful, who are talented, who have great goal-scoring records. But what is it about Messi that sets him apart for you from everybody else? And, and for the record, couldn't agree with you more, but what is it really that nails down that he is just unlike anything else? I think it's how easy he makes it look and how nonchalant that he is with the ball at his feet. It's not like a like he's trying to have a lot of flair, like a, a Neymar or somebody else who also, like you said, can do unbelievable things with the ball. But it's just like a, it's just natural, and it's almost like he doesn't care. He's a super quiet and calm character, and he'll just pull ridiculous touches or passes. Underrated passer of the ball, too, by the way. Um, he'll just pull these passes out of nowhere and then just turn around and walk away like nothing happened, um, and that's. You know, that's part of it for me, too, is just that he's like, yeah, that was that was normal. Nothing out of the ordinary. That's just what I do. So speaking again about this World Cup just gone, obviously, Messi finally won it with Argentina. Um, was that something that you were actively cheering for? And, and how did you feel about his performance in this re- recent World Cup? Yeah, I was. I mean, I think any soccer fan had to have been um, just for him to be able to cement his legacy and actually funny enough going back to that previous school being in Germany for the the final that Germany won I was low-key kind of rooting for Argentina (laughs) even being in Germany for that game too just to see Messi win his world cup um but you know obviously it was a win-win for me because I either see Messi win or I'm in Germany when they won the world cup so it was great but um yeah I mean it was after after the United States was knocked out it was basically Let's let's go for Argentina and have Messi cement cement his legacy. So there's no more questions about um, 
you know, who's, who's the best of all time. Oh, he could never do it with his national team. Um, and he scored in pretty much every single game in the tournament. Now, some of them were penalties, which I understand, but at the end of the day, scoring a penalty in the world cup is not easy. And when you have to take six of them or whatever he had to take, you know, at some point should be, you know, it's a mental test at that point too, to, to be able to keep on scoring them and, and not get psyched out with the keepers. So. And I think it's fair. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I think it's fair. Sometimes people are somewhat critical of people who score goals that are penalties. And I, and I get that, you know, the concept is that a penalty is an easier chance. There's no defenders one-on-one with the goalkeeper, potentially a higher, obviously a higher XG. If you want to go into that kind of breaking it down. Right. But the last time I checked, the penalty still counts as a goal, right? Right. And a goal is and a goal. you still have to score it under all that pressure with the weight of your nation on you. And like even Mbappe, you know, people make arguments about Mbappe in that final. Well, yeah, he had a hat trick, but two of them were penalties. Well, yeah, this dude just scored three penalties in a World Cup final in the same game. Like that is that is not easy. Um, look, look, so. at Harry, look at Harry Kane, as much as it pains me to say it. One of the best you penalty go. takers you've ever seen. Second penalty in a World Cup quarterfinal did not work out. Kylian Mbappe, good penalty taker. I wouldn't necessarily say one of the best in the world, but right. when the lights were the brightest, he scored three. And, nails, yeah. And you can't and you can't criticize Lionel Messi for like why would you criticize someone for scoring? I just I don't understand that. Anyway, um, as as we kind of move forward with Messi here, I mean I, I appreciate that as you've you've already made it very clear your feelings about him as, as a player in, in, in soccer history, shall we say. We're obviously fairly getting towards the twilight of his career. I think it's fair to say he's not going to go on forever. We don't think we'll see him playing in the World Cup in four years, though. I don't know why he didn't just retire as soon as he lifted the World Cup trophy. I'll never understand, at least from international football, because what more have you got to prove? There's been a lot of links about him coming to MLS. And... We are now roughly an hour into our conversation and we haven't really mentioned MLS yet apart from a little bit of talk about Austin FC, which maybe lets people know a little bit about where your priorities are, understandably. But is that something that you would love to see, to see Messi here in MLS? Would that be something that would be as positive for the league as people seem to think it would be? I mean, yeah, it would, it would definitely be positive and it would bring bring more eyes to the league and people would watch Messi play. And it, it would be very interesting to see how he does um, at the end of his career, you know, if he does come here and being old and whatnot and still how how far and above he is the level of play in the MLS. I mean, right now he's, you know, he had a, a tough first season at PSG, but, you know, coming back off that World Cup win and this this last season or the, the first part of this season, he's just been been unbelievable again. So I don't think that he's that close to to uh, coming to the MLS. I, th- I think he's going to sign another deal with PSG, whether it's one year or two years, and he still is is running all over the French League. So, um, you know, who knows if he comes down here. But if he does, I mean, it would definitely be positive and it would be fun to watch him um, in the MLS and, you know, have access to go see games that he's playing in and see him live. Um, yeah, I mean, that would, that would be amazing. But I do think that he still has more left in the tank, um, as surprising as that is. Do you think his final goal is to try and win the Champions League with PSG so that he's done it with multiple clubs? And would that be, do you think that would be enough to solidify him? 
I think, well, I think he's already solidified personally, but, and I think that I'm sure that it is his final goal now. Do I think if he just, if he wins the Champions League this season, is he just going to call it quits and be like, all right, I've done what I needed to do? I don't think so. I think that he just loves the game too much um, and would continue to play. And it's like you said, if he, if he wanted to retire from the national team, he should have already. I don't, I mean, maybe he still will. Maybe he just wants to have another separate party from the World Cup party have a retirement party um maybe that's the case but yeah i i think he has a lot left to give and i think i do think if he wins the champions league with psg this season they're just going to give him another ballon d'or because that's how that works but um we'll see now then var is involved here it's a handball no question an arm ball there you are. Penalty! Yeah, incredible! I told you, he's given the penalty. Fourth minute of stoppage time. Rashford against Buffon. It's Rashford! And Manchester United have produced the impossible! Rashford, nerves of steel! Okay, goal number five for Luke. Luke's fifth and final selection is one that I'm very excited to talk about. Largely due to the goal scorer being in the absolute form of his life right now which probably tells you exactly who we're going to be talking about. But we have to rewind slightly to Wednesday, the 6th of March, 2019. And this is the Champions League round of 16, second leg between Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester United. United had lost the first leg at Old Trafford 2-0, uh, with a performance somewhat inspired by former hero, now villain, Angel Di Maria, uh, whose corner was knocked in by Presnel Kimpembe before Kylian Mbappe, with a very nice finish, made it 2-0 to PSG on the night, leaving Manchester United with a perceived mountain to climb in Paris. And I think largely through injuries, but also a little bit through suspension, the Manchester United lineup is borderline hilarious when you actually look at it. Um, David De Gea was in goal. Eric Bailly was playing right back and only lasted 36 minutes before he was replaced by then, I want to say 19-year-old Diogo Dallo. Uh, Chris Smalling and Victor Lindelof at centre-back with Luke Shaw at left-back before he'd really rediscovered himself. A four across midfield of Ashley Young, who was effectively playing as second right-back to try and stop Mbappe. Scott McTominay and Fred in the middle, and Andreas Pereira, now the best player in Fulham's history, uh, on the left, with Romelu Lukaku and Marcus Rashford up front. United got a dream start. Lukaku, after two minutes, uh, gave United the lead, and that only lasted about 10 minutes until Juan Bernat equalized, and it looked like the dream of any sort of miracle comeback was over. But on the half-hour mark, a speculative shot from Marcus Rashford was tapped home by Lukaku after Buffon had spilled it. And United were 2-1 up. And that's the way it somehow remained. I remember a lot of missed chances, largely from PSG. Um, but that's the way it somehow remained until right on the strike of 90 minutes when Diogo Dallo's shot was handled, thanks to VAR a judgment by Presnel Kimpembe. And I I remember this being probably the first big VAR 
quote unquote controversy, right? Like I don't remember there being a huge VAR row before this particular game and this particular goal. But Kimpembe's handball presents the chance to send United through to Marcus Rashford, and he makes no mistake, smashing the penalty past one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, Gianluigi Buffon. And the United fans in Paris go absolutely wild. Full-time follows shortly after. PSG 1, Man United 3, and Marcus Rashford is the hero. It's quite simply a remarkable game of football, one that I don't think any United fan will ever forget. And arguably the highlight of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer era, perhaps. And we'll talk a little bit about Oli in just a couple of minutes here. But Luke, take me back to your memories of this game, this moment, and this penalty from Marcus Rashford. Yeah, that night in Paris. Um, yeah, this is this is another one where I was in class. Um, this was at in college. Um, in class, had the game up on the computer, and you're watching, and, and like you said, somehow it still is 2-1 in the late stages of the game, and you're like, can we somehow just score a goal here with, with these kids on the field? And Dallow takes a shot that's going miles over the crossbar. Um, and it gets sent to VAR and you're watching the replay and you're like, yeah, it's not a handball, but they take forever. So this is going to take a while. And then like the longer it goes on, you're like, well, this would be pretty funny if they actually give us the penalty here. And then they do. And I'm just like, holy shit, there's no way. There's no way we're actually getting this penalty. Um, and Marcus Rashford steps up, also still very young at the time. A um, lot of pressure on him in this moment um, and just buries it. And I was going about as crazy as I could. This this was not a uh, soccer-watching friendly class. Um, this I was watching in secret, but I was silently. I mean, I, I remember putting my hands up and just in silence, kind of like going crazy. Um, and yeah, it was just, you see the celebrations, all the, all the kids that are in the celebrations, the angel, angel Gomez, I think might've been on the, on the field or Tahit Chong on the field. And then you have your, your McFred and it's just like this team just knocked out PSG, um, of the champions league at a time when, you know, we've been, we've been starved of fun and exciting moments for Man United for a long time. So, yeah, it was just, it was unreal. You, you mentioned being starved of uh, exciting moments. I know that you are not particularly the biggest fan of the previous manager of Manchester United um, before Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So t- just take me back a little bit because maybe that plays into this goal itself. So the the Jose Mourinho exit and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer entry um, what what were your feelings about that at the time as as a United fan? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I was never a big a big Jose fan. I never felt that he was the right fit for for Man United long term, Manchester United. But you know, I mean, he was always going to come in and win a trophy or two, um, and probably have a good season or two, which he did, and credit to him. But you know, it just it feels like in terms of the the principles of Man United, um, we should be trying to build a project for the future and not hiring a, a three-year coach, um, which is kind of what Jose seemed to be. Um, and just just didn't really play the style of, of soccer that we were used to seeing and playing. So, 
I mean, you know, he gave us our successes, but I was, I was happy to see him go. Um, there was excitement with, with Ollie just from his interim spell. I don't know necessarily that, that they should have gone with him long-term. I mean, at the time he deserved it. He, he was on an unbelievable winning record. The vibes were high. Um, he was, you know, having them perform well above their level. So he deserved to sign that contract probably. And I, I'm not sure who else really was available at that time for us to go and get. So, um, yeah, I think, I think Ollie brought a lot of excitement in that first year or two, um, and did a lot of really good things. It was, it was a shame how, how that ended. And obviously in a, in a weird way, I think that Solskjaer's fortunes are, are almost mirrored by this goal scorer's fortunes in that I think towards the end of the Solskjaer era, um, and certainly into the quote-unquote Rangnick era, uh, Marcus Rashford had a bit of a downturn. Um, and yet now, four years on somehow from that night in Paris, um, he appears to have finally reached the peak of his powers. And as we sit here today recording on a Wednesday evening, uh, after Marcus's wonder goal has helped Manchester United to a 3-0 first leg advantage in the Carabao Cup semi-final. Um, we we kind of have to talk about him and what he is now. And a former guest on this podcast, Thomas Willoughby, who also selected this goal, he spoke about how Marcus Rashford means so much to him based on his Manchester heritage, this moment, and what it meant to his family. Is, is Marcus Rashford... Does he mean that much to you as a Manchester United fan as well? And that's that's not to put you on the spot, but obviously with the successes he's had and coming from the Manchester United Academy, is he is he one that you you love to cheer for? Oh, absolutely! I lo- I love Marcus Rashford. I always have. Um, and yeah, it's like you said, he's he's born and bred Manchester United. He came out of our academy, burst onto the scene, and. It was like every different debut he had, he had a debut goal in every different cup and league and even for England. Um, and yeah, just a, a stellar first season. And then, like you said, was kind of plagued by injuries. He had, you know, his injuries that kept him out for a full season. And then that last season under Ollie, he still never really seemed fit. Um, it seemed like, you know, there was whatever was going on mentally off the field. But, you know, for me, I always knew that player was there. Um, it just needed the the right coach and environment to unlock that. Um, and I'm really, really happy that Ten Hag has been able to do that with, with him this season um, because, as we're seeing, he's just an, an unbelievable player, um, bags of talent. And I hope that, you know, he uh, he sees that this is still a good place for him and he ends up staying. I, I have confidence that he will. I think it's, it's all a lot of rumors that he's going to go to PSG and things like that, but... I uh, I'm confident that that we'll keep hold of him, um, and he'll he'll go down in the in the Manchester United history books. And obviously, you've you've kind of touched on on Ten Hag already, and you know we'll we'll talk about him in just a couple of minutes here. But with the end of the Solskjaer era, is is this a memory that you look back on as the highlight of the Solskjaer era? Do you have fun memories overall, even though it didn't quite work out in the end the way the fans wanted it to? Yeah, I think this probably is the highlight um, of the Solskjaer era, and and I do have fond memories. Um, you know, I think that he he brought the feel good factor back for those couple years, um, 
and and we were enjoying watching games for a little while there and then obviously at the in his last season um that took a turn for the worse i i don't think that he was helped by all the other stuff surrounding man united and the board and all that and i don't know that all the signings were his um and that that probably didn't help but i think overall he he actually did bring us a lot of good times um and we were at least playing playing exciting soccer i don't know by the end of it you know there was a lot of arguments that there's no he has no tactics he has no plan he's whatever pe coach but i think that people forget some of the winning runs that we went on um and some of the the really really big games that we won um with him and he got us to to multiple semifinals we never got past i mean we got past to the to the europa league final that one time um but for the large part, most of the tournaments we were in, we were still getting to semifinals, um, if not finals. So he was taking us on deep cup runs. And yeah, it was, it was a shame what happened in the end, but it was for the best at that time for, for us to move on. And then just lastly, obviously, with the the, the obvious follow-on is 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 now with, with the Ten Hag era, you've touched on a couple of things there in terms of, you know, Champions League nights, this being this being the selection. Um I guess the the double edged question is: Do you feel now, after Marcus's performance today, that this is a chance that United might win their first trophy in a in six years? And does it now feel like you know Champions League nights should be soon returning to Old Trafford with the the leadership of Eric Ten Hag? I think you have to say so. I mean, I I think that we're the obvious favorites for the the Carabao Cup. Um, you know, I can't, you can't say it's guaranteed. New, Newcastle's obviously doing doing well in the league this year. I I'm assuming they'll get through um, to be our opponent in the final, given that we can maintain a three goal lead at Old Trafford. But um, yeah, and you know where we're sitting in the table right now, um, it would be it would be heartbreaking to not finish in the top four. And I think if you were to tell us at the beginning of the season that we would be top four with at least one trophy, if not two, um, two or three are still possibilities. You would absolutely take that. Um, especially after the first two weeks. Um, I don't think anyone even had us anywhere near the top four at that time. So what he's, what Ten Hag has done over the past 10 weeks or so has just been unbelievable. All right. Those are Luke's five Desert Island goals by way of a very quick recap. We started with Wayne Rooney for Man United against Manchester City in the Premier League of 2011. Had a Robin Van Persie's volley, the second goal of his hat-trick, Manchester United against Aston Villa in the Premier League in 2013. We had Sammy Kadira for Germany against Brazil in the World Cup semi-final of 2014. Lionel Messi's majestic free kick for Barcelona against Liverpool in the Champions League semi-final first leg of 2019. And Marcus Rashford's tie-winning penalty for Manchester United against PSG in the round of 16 of the 2019 Champions League. Luke, fantastic list. Lots of great moments, lots of incredible goals, quality-wise for sure. Um, But as we alluded to at the start, you know, five is a limiting number. And as a fan, as big as you are, you've seen a lot of goals and a lot of football. So... I'm sure you have some honorable mentions and, and which were the ones that just missed uh, missed out on being in your final five that you'd like to give some, I guess, plaudits to. 
Yeah, so there's there's definitely one that was in the top five um, for a while and recently made its way out, and that was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo free kick against the World Eleven in a charity match at Old Trafford. Um, and this is on the list, one, because of the quality of it, which I don't think a lot of people know this goal just because it was a charity match. You would have just probably seen the highlights on YouTube, but it's almost a carbon copy of his ridiculous free kick against Portsmouth. Um, that goes up and over the wall and then just flies off into the upper 90 um, and really just defies the laws of physics. But I was also at this game, uh, my first visit to Old Trafford. And so seeing that live um, and, you know, when you watch it live and especially at the young age, like I thought surely that deflected off somebody's head and flew into the top corner, but it was just the bin that he put on the ball. Um, so just an unbelievable goal. And it just kind of, you know, takes me back to that memory of, of being in at Old Trafford for the first time. Um, and, you know, seeing a lot of great stars in that game. Um, Ibrahimovic, Pirlo was playing on the other side. So, um, yeah, that one, that one recently fell out just because I've got a, a bad taste in my mouth um, with Ronaldo, with the Ronaldo saga lately. And, so I just I didn't feel I could include him anymore after the way he's uh, disrespected our club. So um, something about doing an interview with with uh, Pierce Morgan really really pissed me off. Who knows why? So that was one of them. Um, another one. Paul Scholes gets an honorable mention. Paul Scholes Champions League semifinal versus Barcelona in 08. That one's just an unbelievable goal, and then obviously by my favorite player. Um, but I just felt like I had too many other other goals that had emotional memories and ties to it. That one was more just a, a beautiful goal by one of my favorite players. Um, and then last one would be uh, Dimitar Berbatov. Um, had a goal. Um, I don't remember remember what year it is, but I'm sure you've seen this clip. He starts the move in the in our own half um, with a little Cruyff pass, and the play gets sent down the field. Um, and he finishes the move. It's just like a perfect team move, brilliant team goal. Um, and Berbatov, like you said, just had a knack for for uh, making things look easy um, and scoring some some really beautiful goals. Yeah, that's Berbatov's five goal game against Blackburn that you're talking about, and I believe it's 2010, 2011. Um, but I'm just googling it to make sure. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, the. I think that might have been his hat-trick goal in that game. Uh, but United beat Blackburn, I think it was 7-1 in the end. And Berbatov scored five. And, you know, that is a yeah. fairly remarkable performance regardless. Yeah, yeah. November 27, 2010, 7-1 Man United. And uh, Berbatov with five of them, including a majestic move, as you described it, Luke. So, yeah, completely fair. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... That's as good an honourable mention as there is going to be out there because, you know, what a player he was and uh, and what a goal that was as well. Luke, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great to get a chance to chat with you, chat all things football, and uh, thank you for sharing your Desert Island goals with us. Absolutely. Had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course, mate. Thank you for taking the time. Um, guys, as always, all the goals are in the description, uh, like we said earlier. So if you haven't seen any of these or you want to revisit any, 
to better understand Luke's uh, feelings and emotions around these goals, you should be able to click the links and and do so. Uh, please do give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help our algorithms. And please continue sharing with your friends and family. Uh, as always, I'm making a plea for anybody who wants to be on the podcast to get in touch. Uh, we you know, we want to hear from football fans all over the world, from all manner of teams. And as much as I enjoy talking about Manchester United, I want this to be a, a diverse selection of football fans and teams as well. So please get in touch. Again, thanks for taking the time to listen. From Luke, I've been Callum Squires. You have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon. Cheers. 